Section twenty nine of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume Two by Thomas Stevens. Section twenty nine, Chapter fifteen, Delhi and Agra, Part one. From the police tana of Rai, where the night is spent, to Delhi, the character of the road changes to a mixture of clay and rock, altogether inferior to Kunka. The twenty-one miles are covered, however, by 8.30 a.m., that hour finding me wheeling down the broad suburban road to the Lahore Gate amid throngs of country people carrying baskets of mangoes, plantains, pomegranates, and other indigenous products into the markets of the old Mughal capital. Massive archways, ruined forts and sarais, placid water tanks, lovely gardens, feathery toddy palms, plantain hedges, and throngs of picturesque people make the approach to historic Delhi a scene long to be remembered. Entering the Lahore Gate, suitable accommodation is found at Northbrook Hotel, a comfortable hostelry under native management near the Moree Gate, and overlooking from its roof the scenes of the most memorable events connected with the siege of Delhi in 1857. Letters are found at the post office, apprising me of a bicycle camera and paper negatives awaiting my orders at the American consulate at Calcutta and it behooves me to linger here for a few days until its arrival in reply to a telegram. No more charming spot could possibly be found to linger in than the old Mughal capital, with its wondrous wealth of historical associations, both remotely antique and comparatively modern, its glorious monuments of imperial oriental splendor, and its reminiscences of heroic deeds in battle. A letter of introduction to an English gentleman brought from Kurnaul secures me friends and attention at once. In the cool of the evening we drive out together in his pony Phaeton along the historic granite ridge that formed the site of the British camp during the siege. The operations against the city were conducted mostly from this ridge and the intervening ground. On the ridge itself is erected a beautiful red granite monument memorial, bearing the names of prominent officers and the numbers of men killed, the names of the regiments, etc., engaged in the siege and assault. Here also is Hindu Rao's house and ancient obelisks. East of the Mori Gate is the world-famed Kashmir Gate, world-famed in connection with the brilliant exploit of the little forlorn hope that on the morning of September the 14th, 1857, succeeded, in the face of a deadly fusillade from the walls and the wicket gates, in carrying bags of gunpowder and blowing it up. Through the opening thus effected, poured the eager troops that rescued the city from ten times their own number of mutineers, and turned the beams of the scale in which the fate of the whole British Empire 
was at the moment balanced. Perhaps in all the world's battles no more heroic achievement was ever attempted or carried out than the blowing up of the Kashmir Gate. Saul Keld laid his bags of powder in the face of a deadly fire from the open wicket not ten feet distant. He was instantly shot through the arm and leg and fell back on the bridge, handing the port fire to Sergeant Burgess, bidding him light the fuse. Burgess was instantly shot dead in the attempt. Sergeant Carmichael then advanced, took up the port fire, and succeeded in firing the fuse, but immediately fell mortally wounded. Sergeant Smith, seeing him fall, advanced at a run, but finding that the fuse was already burning, flung himself into the ditch. Difficult indeed would it be to crowd more heroism into the same number of words that I have here quoted from Colonel Medley, an eyewitness of the affair. Between the double archways of the gate is a red sandstone memorial tablet, placed there by Lord Napier of Magdala, upon which is inscribed the names, rank, and regiment of those who took part in the forlorn hope. All is now peaceful and lovely enough, but the stone bastions and parapets still remain pretty much as when the British batteries seized their plunging rain of shot and shell thirty years ago. Not far from the Moree Gate is the tomb of General Nicholson, one of the most conspicuous and heroic characters of that trying period, and generally regarded as the saviour of Delhi. Enshrined in the hearts of the brave Sikhs, no less than in the hearts of his own countrymen, his tomb has become a regular place of pilgrimage for the old Sikh warriors who fought side by side with the English against the mutineers. It has been my good fortune, I find, to arrive at the old Mughal capital the day before the commencement of an annual merry-making, picnicking, and general holiday at the celebrated Kutub Minar. The Kutub Minar is about eleven miles out of Delhi, situated amid the ruins of ancient Dili, Delhi, the old Hindu city from which the more modern city takes its name. It is conceded to be the most beautiful Minar monument in the world, and ranks with the Taj Mahal at Agra as one of the beautiful architectural triumphs peculiar to the splendid era of Mohammedan rule in India, and which are not to be matched elsewhere. The day following my arrival I conclude to take a spin out on my bicycle as far as the Kutub, and see something of it, the ruins amid which it stands, and the Hindus in holiday attire. I choose the comparative coolness of early morning for the ride out, but early though it be, the road thither is already swarming with gaily dressed people bent on holiday-making. The road is a worthy offshoot of the grand trunk, not a whit less smooth of surface, nor less lovely in its wealth of sacred shade-trees. Moreover, it passes through a veritable wilderness of ruined cities, mosques, tombs, and forts the whole distance, and leads right through the magnificent remains of the ancient Hindu city itself. 
The Kutub Minar is found to be a beautifully fluted column, 240 feet high, and it soars grandly above the mournful ruins of old Dili, its hoary wealth of crumbled idol temples, tombs, and forts. The Minar is supposed to have been erected in the latter part of the 12th century to celebrate the victory of the Mohammedans over the Hindus of Dili. The general effect of the tall, stately Mohammedan monument among the Hindu ruins is that of a proud gladiator standing erect and triumphant amid fallen foes. At least, that is how it looks to me as I view it in connection with the ruins at its base and ponder upon its history. A spiral stairway of 375 steps leads to the summit. A group of natives are already up there enjoying the cool breezes and the prospect below. In the comprehensive view from the summit, one can read an instructive sermon of centuries of stirring Indian history in the grey stonework of ruined mosques and tombs and fortresses and pagan temples that dot the valley of the Jumna hereabout almost as thickly as the trees. Strange crowds have congregated on this rare old historic camping ground in ages past. It was a strange crowd gathered here for a strange purpose on that traditional occasion, when Raja Pithara, in the fourth century of the Christian era, had the celebrated iron shaft dug up to satisfy his curiosity as to whether it had transfixed the subterranean snake god Vishay. There is a strange crowd gathered here today, too. I can hear their shouting and their tom-tomming come floating up from among the ruins and the dark green foliage as I look down from my beautiful eyrie on top of the kutub upon their pygmy forms, thronging the walks and roads, brown and busy as a swarm of ants. It is a vast concourse of people, characteristic of teeming India but they are not on this occasion congregated to witness pagan rites and ceremonies, nor to encourage iconoclastic mullahs in smashing Hindu gods and chipping offensive Hindu carvings off their temples. They are a mixed crowd of Hindus, Sikhs, and Mohammedans, who, having to some extent buried the hatchet of race and religious animosities under the just and tolerant rule of a Christian government, have gathered here amid the ruins and relics of their respective past histories to enjoy themselves in innocent recreation. Descending from the Kutub Minar, I am resting beneath the shade of the Dak bungalow hard by, when a grey-bearded Hindu approaches, salams, and hands me a paper. The paper is a certificate certifying that the bearer, Chuni Lai, had performed before Captain Somebody of the Fusiliers, and had afforded that officer excellent amusement. Before I have quite grasped the situation, or comprehended the purport of the tendered missive, several men and boys deposit a miscellaneous assortment of boxes and baskets before me, and range themselves in a semicircle behind them. The old fellow with the certificate picks out a small box and raises the lid. A huge cobra 
thrusts out its hideous head and puffs its hooded neck to the size of a man's hand. It then dawns on me that the grey-bearded Hindu is a conjurer, and being curious to see something of Indian prestidigitation, I allow him to proceed. Many of the tricks are quite commonplace and transparent even to a novice. For example, he mixes red, yellow, and white powders together in a tumbler of water, and swallows the mixture, making, of course, a wry face, as though taking a dose of bitter medicine. He then calls a boy from among the bystanders and blows first red powder, then yellow, then white into the youngster's face. I judge he had small bags of dry powder stowed away in his cheek. He performs his tricks on the bare ground, without any such invaluable adjunct as the table of his European rival, and some of them, viewed in the light of this disadvantage, are indeed puzzling. For instance, he fills an ordinary tin pot nearly full of water, puts in a handful of yellow sand and a handful of red powder, and thoroughly stirs them up. He then thrusts his naked hand into the water, and brings forth a handful of each kind, dry as when he put them in. A simple enough trick, no doubt, to the initiated, but the old conjurer's arm is bared, and the tin is, as far as I can discover, but an ordinary vessel, and the trick is performed without any cover, table, or cloth. After this he expectorates a number of glass marbles, and ends with a couple of solid iron jingle-bells that he can scarce get out of his mouth. There is no mistake about their being of solid iron, and the old conjurer opens his mouth and lets me see them emerging from his throat. From what I see him do as the final act, and which there is no deception about, I am inclined to think the old fellow has actually acquired the power of swallowing these jingle-bells and reproducing them at pleasure. After a number of tricks too familiar to justify mentioning here, he covers his head with a cloth for a minute, and then reappears with brass eyeballs, with a small hole bored in the centre of each to represent the pupils, and his mouth is rendered hideous with a set of teeth belonging to some animal. In this horrible make-up, the old Hindu tom-toms on a small oblong drum, while one of his assistants sings in broken English, Buffalo Gals. He then openly removes the false teeth, and taking out the brass eyeballs, he casts them jingling on the gravel at my feet. They are simply hemispheres of sheet brass, and fitted closely over the eyeballs beneath the lids. The conjurer's eyes water visibly after the brass covers are removed, and well enough they might. There is no sleight of hand about this, it is purely an act of self-torture. In most of the conjuring tricks the conjurer would purposely make a partial failure in the first attempt. An assistant would then impart the necessary power by muttering cabalistic words over a monkey's skull. A mongoose had been tethered to a stake at the beginning of the performance, 
and the little ferret-like enemy of the snake family kept tugging at his tether and sniffing suspiciously about whenever snakes appeared in the conjurer's manipulations. He had promised me a fight between the mongoose and a snake, and before presenting his little brass bowl for backsheesh, he holds out a four-foot snake toward the eager little animal at the stake. The snake writhes and struggles to get away, evidently badly scared at the prospect of an encounter with the mongoose, but the man succeeds in depositing him within his adversary's reach. The mongoose nabs him by the neck in an instant, and would no doubt soon have finished him, but the assistants part them with wire crooks, putting the snake in a basket with several others, and the mongoose in another. While watching the interesting performances of the Hindu conjurers, I have left the bicycle at a little dak bungalow near the old entrance gate. From the commanding height of the Kutub, one could see that the Delhi road is a solid mass of vehicles and pedestrians. How the people in teeming India do swarm on these festive occasions! It looks impossible to make one's way with a bicycle against that winding stream of human beings, and so, after wandering about a while among the striking and peculiar colonnades of the ancient pagan temples, paying the regulation tribute of curiosity to the enigmatic iron column, and doing the place in general, I return to the bungalow, thinking of starting back to Delhi, when I find that my cycle of strange experiences has attracted to itself a no less interesting gathering than a troop of Nautch girls and their chaperone. The troop numbers about a dozen girls, and they have come to the merrymaking at the Kutub to gather honest shekels by giving exhibitions of their Terpsichorean talents in the Nautch dance. I had been wondering whether an opportunity to see this famous dance would occur during my trip through India, and so, when four or five of the prettiest of these dusky damsels gather about me, smile at me, winsomely ogle me with their big black eyes, smile again, smile separately, smile unanimously, smile all over their semi-mahogany but nevertheless not unhandsome faces, and every time displaying sets of pearly teeth. What could I do, what could any one have done, but smile in return? There is no language more eloquent or more easily understood than the language of facial expression. No verbal question or answer is necessary. I interpret the winsome smiles of the Norchneys aright, and they interpret very quickly the permission to go ahead that reveals itself in the smile they force from me. Eight of the twelve are commonplace girls of from fourteen to eighteen, and the other four are dark but comely, quite handsome as handsomeness goes among the Hindus. Their arms are bare of everything save an abundance of bracelets, and the upper portion of the body is rather scantily draped after the manner and custom of all Hindu females, but an ample skirt of red calico reaches to the ankle, rings are worn on every toe, 
and massive silver anklets with tiny bells attached make music when they walk or dance. They wear a profusion of bracelets, necklets of rupees, head ornaments, earrings, and pendant charms, and a massive gold or brass ring in the left nostril. The nostril is relieved of its burden by a string that descends from a head ornament and takes up the weight. The Nautch girls arrange themselves into a half-circle, their scarlet costumes forming a bright crescent, terminating in a mass of spectators, whose half-naked bodies, varying in colour from pale olive to mahogany, are arrayed in costumes scarcely less showy than the dancers. The chaperone and eight outside girls tom-tom, an appropriate nautch accompaniment on drums with their fingers. The four prettiest girls advance, and favouring me with sundry smiles and coquettish glances from their bright black eyes, they commence to dance. An idea seems to prevail in many Occidental minds that the nautch dance is a very naughty thing, but nothing is further from the truth. Of course, it can be made naughty, and no doubt often is, but then so can many another form of innocent amusement. The nautch dance is a decorous and artistic performance when properly danced. The graceful motions and elegant proportions of the human form, as revealed by lithe and graceful dancers, are to be viewed with an eye as purely artistic and critical as that with which one regards a Venus or other production of the sculptor's studio. The four dancers take the lower hem of their red garment daintily between the thumb and finger of the right hand, spreading its ample folds into the figure of an opened fan by bringing the outstretched arm almost on a level with the shoulder. A mantle of transparent muslin, fringed with silver spangles, is worn about the head and shoulders in the same indescribably graceful manner as the mantilla of the Spanish senorita. Raising a portion of this aloft in the left hand, and keeping the fan intact with the right, the dancers twirl around and change positions with one another, their supple figures meanwhile assuming a variety of graceful motions and postures from time to time. Now they imitate the spiral movement of a serpent climbing around and upward on an imaginary pole. Again they assume an attitude of gracefulness, their dusky countenances half-hidden in seeming coquetry behind the muslin mantle, the large red fan waving gently to and fro, the feet unmoving but the undulating motions of the body and the tremor of the limbs sufficing to jingle the tiny ankle-bells. On the whole, the nautch dance would be disappointing to most people witnessing it. Its fame leads one to expect more than it really amounts to. Before starting back to Delhi, I take a stroll through the adjacent village of Kutub, a place named after the Minar, I suppose. The crooked main street of the village of Kutub itself presents today a scene of gaiety and confusion that beggars description. 
bunting floats gaily from every window and balcony in honour of the festival and is strung across the street from house to house thousands of globular coloured lanterns are hanging about ready to be lighted up at night the streets are thronged with people in the gayest of costumes and with vehicles the gilt and paint and glitter of which equal the glittering wagons and chariots of a circus parade at home the balconies above the shops are curtained with blue gauze behind which are seen numbers of ladies chatting eating fruits and sweetmeats and peeping down through the semi-transparent screens upon the animated scene in the streets on the stalls choice edibles are piled up by the bushel and busy vendors are hawking fruits sweets toddy and all imaginable refreshments about among the crowds vacant lots are occupied by the tents of visiting peasants and in out-of-the-way corners acrobatics jugglery and nautch dancing attract curious crowds the incoming tide of human life is at its flood as i start back to delhi by the same road i came here one gets a glimpse of the real gorgeousness of india without seeking for it at the pageants of princes and rajas small zemindars from outlying villages are bringing their wives and daughters to the festivities at the kutub in circusy looking bullock chariots covered with gilt and carvings and draped and twined with party-coloured ribbons some of these gaudy turnouts are drawn by richly caparisoned milk-white oxen with gilded horns cymbals and sleigh-bells galore keep up a merry jingle and tom-tomming parties make their noisy presence known all along the line still more gorgeous and interesting than the gilded ox garries of the ordinary zemindars are miniature chariots drawn by pairs of well-matched undersized oxen covered with richly spangled trappings and with horns curiously gilded and tipped with tiny bells these are the vehicles of petted young nabobs in charge of attendants tiny oxen with gorgeous trappings tiny chariots richly gilded and carved and painted tiny occupants richly dressed and jewelled troops of nautch knees add their picturesque appearance to the brilliant throngs and here and there is encountered a holy fakir unkempt and unwashed having perchance registered a vow years ago never more to apply water to his skin his only clothing a dirty waist-cloth and the yellow clay plastered on his body long strings of less pretentious bullock garries almost block the roadway and people constantly dodging out from behind them in front of my wheel make it extremely difficult to ride several days are passed at delhi waiting the arrival of a small bicycle camera from calcutta which has been forwarded from america most of this time is spent in the pleasant occupation of reclining in an armchair beneath the punkah the only comfortable situation in delhi at this season of the year 
Nevertheless, I manage to spin around the city mornings and evenings and visit the famous fort and palace of Shah Jahan. In the magnificent, magnificent even in the decline of its grandeur, fort palace of the Mughal emperor named, British soldiers now find comfortable quarters. This fort, together with modern Delhi, the real Indian name of Delhi is Shah Jahanabad, after the Emperor Shah Jahan, who had it built, is but about two hundred and fifty years old, the entire affair having been built to gratify the Mughal ambition for founding new capitals. Although so modern compared with other cities nearby, both city and palace have gone through strangely stirring and tragic experiences, and events have happened in the latter that though sometimes trivial in themselves, have led to momentous results. In this palace, in 1716, was given permission by the Emperor Farouk Zaire to the Scotch physician Gabriel Hamilton, the privilege that have gradually led up to the British conquest of the whole peninsula. As a reward for professional services rendered, permission to establish factories on the Hooghly was given. The presidency of Fort William sprung therefrom, and at length the British Indian Empire. Twenty years after this, the terrible Nadir Shah from Persia occupied the palace and held hijinks within, while his army slaughtered over a hundred thousand of the inhabitants in the streets. When this red-headed marauder took his departure, he carried away with him booty to the value of eighty millions sterling in the value of that time. Among the plunder was the famous peacock throne, alone reported to be worth six million pounds. This remarkable piece of kingly furniture is said to be in the possession of the Shah of Persia at the present time. It is very probable, however, that only some unique portion of the throne is preserved, as it could hardly have been carried back to Persia by Nadir intact. This throne is thus described by a writer. The throne was six feet long and four broad, composed of solid gold inlaid with precious stones. It was surmounted by a canopy of gold supported on twelve pillars of the same material. Around the canopy hung a fringe of pearls. On each side of the throne stood two chattas, or umbrellas, symbols of royalty formed of crimson velvet richly embroidered with gold thread and pearls, and with handles of solid gold eight feet long studded with diamonds. The back of the throne was a representation of the expanded tail of a peacock, the natural colors of which were imitated by sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and other gems. This peacock throne was the envy and admiration of every contemporary monarch who heard of it, and was undoubtedly one of the chief elements in exciting the cupidity of the outer world that finally ended in the dissolution of the Mughal Empire. Less than ten years after the departure of Nadir Shah, Ahmud Khan advanced with an army from Kabul, 
and took pretty much everything of value that the Khorasani freebooter had overlooked, besides committing more atrocities upon the population. At the end of another decade an army of Marathas took possession, and completed the spoilation by ripping the silver filigree work off the ceiling of the throne room. Not long after this, yet another adventurer took a hand in the work of destruction, tortured the members of the imperial family, and put out the eyes of the helpless old emperor, Shah Alum. Here Lord Lake's cavalcade arrived, too, in 1803, and found the blinded chief of the royal house of Timur and his magnificent successors, who built Delhi and Agra, seated beneath the tattered remnants of a little canopy, a mockery of royalty with every external appearance of misery and helplessness. And lastly here, in May 1857, the last representative of the great moguls, a not unwilling tool in the hands of the East India Company's mutinous soldiery, presided over the butchery of helpless English women and children. End of section 29